Hey, uh, welcome and good morning. Looked at the thermostat yesterday and it said 72, and I haven't seen that in a long time. It's good to be back, right? Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, continuing through our series, What Lies Ahead, looking at what it means to come fully alive by following Jesus in any circumstance. We've been going through the book of Philippians. We're going to go from beginning to end. We're still in the beginning. Uh, so if you missed the, the last couple of weeks, I'll just give you a quick recap as you're turning there. And then I'll read the text and we'll study it together. Uh, but the first, the first passage that we went through on the first week was Paul uh, exuding joy. Uh, joy from the heart because there was this little community, a little church community in Philippi that had gathered around the gospel of the kingdom. That was their great aspiration. Something that Paul uh, resonated with in the second week. We saw that that gospel of the kingdom was what got Paul through a lot of difficult circumstances like prison and affliction. Uh, And today we're going to see Paul telling us what he thinks is going to happen with prison and affliction and what that means for you and I today. And so I'll take it from, the, from verse 18, kind of a overlapping with, with uh, last week. I'll just read the whole passage through and we'll pray. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we bow the knee before your word, believing it to be true and right, to be given to us as people wrote, as they were led by the Spirit. Not just for people's lives 2,000 years ago, but for our lives today, as your word is not just a document, but it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and able to pierce between the dividing of soul and spirit and bone and marrow. It pierces into the heart of the human being and it shows us like a mirror what is there and what you want to do with it. And so we submit ourselves to your word. Your word is the greatest word and we receive it as a gift today and ask that God's word would speak. And I know I have to talk about God's word with my word. I pray that my word would not get in the way of God's word that if it does, I pray that you, by grace, would cause us to forget anything that is not of you, and that the Spirit would speak to your church today the way that you so kindly do 
throughout the week and every week. We love you, Lord. We honor you and worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Malcolm Gladwell asked a question, spiritual and deep. It was, uh, why are there hundreds of different types of mustards, but only one type of ketchup? <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> and he went on a, a rampage of research to discover why there are chipotle flavored mustards and dill flavored mustards and barbecue flavored mustards, but only Heinz ketchup. And in his research, he discovered that the difference between mustard and ketchup, really the difference between ketchup and just about everything that you would eat, is that most of the things that you eat or purchase at a grocery store or eat focus on one particular flavor, or maybe two. It might be a sour food, it might be a sweet food, it might be a salty food. What sets ketchup apart is... uh, Decades ago, when Thomas Hines endeavored to make the perfect ketchup, he used culinary science to create a condiment that would reach the full spectrum of tastes. So it covers both sweet, it covers sour, it covers umami, whatever that is. Uh, It covers uh, all five areas of the human uh, taste experience. So that when you eat it, it's, it's, it's completing the spectrum. Not only that, but all of those tastes are wired to be balanced together. You ever drink like a, a really cheap Coca-Cola, uh, like an off-brand, and you're like, oh, I taste a lot of cinnamon, that's really weird, or vanilla. But when you taste a Coke, you're like, I don't know what this is, but it is good. I can't put my finger on it. The, the, the flavors are blending together. So Thomas Hines, decades ago, created a ketchup that spans the spectrum of human taste experience that all blends together. Uh, basically, uh, Malcolm Gladwell came to, this, uh, came to this conclusion. He said, you know, when mustard or basically any condiment or food that you create uh, is out there, basically pinpoints a certain taste, ketchup does it all. And it's hard to improve upon perfection. Ketchup is complete the way that it is. That's why when you go into the grocery store, you might find something weird on the shelf up there, but generally speaking, you're probably going to get Heinz. You can't improve on something that's already completed. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. Thinking, how is he going to tie ketchup into the (laughs) Apostle Paul? Oh, I'll find a way. I know this is going to sound very horrible, but if Jesus were to say, you are the salt of the earth, I think Paul would say, you're the ketchup of the earth. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. Paul is, however, really big on completion. We can find ourselves... uh, we can find ourselves being satisfied with one area of the Christian life, but what you're going to see in Paul, in Jesus, and I think in this text, is that God doesn't just want a piece of you. He wants the whole spectrum, the whole spectrum of your personality 
and he wants to bring to it a sense of balance, you are the ketchup. I want to show you where I'm getting this because I, I can see by your eyes that you think I'm making this up. It's in one word. Uh, in verse 18 and 19, it's in the word deliverance. I'll just read that whole sentence. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know, remember he's in prison, he's being afflicted by other believers that are sliming his reputation, and he says, yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, the prayers of, of the church in Philippi, and the help of the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And in what I'm going through, I'm going to get delivered right now. I know that through the power of the Spirit and your prayers. The word, uh, the uh, original word behind what we see here in deliverance is the word soteria, which is where we get the word salvation. He's essentially saying, I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to find salvation in what I'm going through right now. Now, when you hear the word salvation... Or when you hear the word deliverance, chances are you might be thinking of either two things. You might be thinking of eternal salvation. So maybe when you think of salvation, you think of something that happens later, like a destination that I get to, like heaven or whatever. Or some of you might be thinking he's, he's praying to be delivered or saved from prison. So God is going to break him out. I don't think, I'm going to show you why I don't think that, but I don't think it's either of those two things that Paul is speaking about here. I don't think he's, he's saying, I am assured that God is going to break me out of prison. Or we might say, I am assured that God is going to change my circumstances. Well, he might. He might not. I think that uh, there's a deeper thing happening here. And I, I think that because he says this will turn out for my deliverance. What is this? Prison. He isn't saying God is going to remove me from this difficult situation. He's, it actually sounds like he's saying this difficult situation is the means by which God is going to deliver me. He's going to do something in me. I don't think it's eternal salvation, like the sweet by and by. I don't think it's something in the future, although that's certainly part of the Christian experience that Paul is emphasizing here because he keeps speaking about his present experience. In the next few verses, he'll say, I, I am assured uh, my hope is that I will not be ashamed right now. Uh, I believe that Christ, I have courage that Christ will be honored in my body right now. He's not speaking about something later. He's not speaking about even being delivered out of his circumstances. He is speaking about a present experience. We might call it an empowering. It seems like Paul wants to finish well. It's like I might die, I might live, could be either one of those, but I am sure, I have courage, I have faith that God is going to deliver me. What is he saying? I, I believe that God is going to bring me to the finish line complete. I believe that he's going to use this process of suffering just as he uses prosperity to do what he needs to do to complete me. I want to hit three things today in this text. One, what does God want to do in you? How far does God want to go with what he's doing in you and what does that look like going forward? I think we could answer that first question. What does God want to do in you and in me and in Paul and in each other, the will of God is to conform you 
to his son. Jesus right now is forming Paul, not right now, when this was written, he's forming Paul through his present difficulty. He's not taking him out of it. He's using it to make Paul more like Jesus. And Paul is thrilled about that. He says, this is a gain. Whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead, more Christ, either in me or in you. This is this whole thought process. The will of God is to conform you to Christ, and he'll use a variety of means to do that. In fact, Paul would say in the letter to the Romans in chapter 8, we know this verse, I think we know the first part at least, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I love that passage. I think most of us love that passage. But if you're like me, I read into that passage sometimes what I think is good. So I tell myself, God will take my my present circumstances and he will work them together for good. I love God. I'm called according to his purpose. So God is going to turn everything that I'm going through into something good. Now that's true. But what's good for me isn't always the same thing that God has in mind for me. So you might, you might read this verse and say, well, I want a high-paying, multi-million dollar job. That sounds good. And God will work all things together for the good of those who love God. Or you might say, well, I'm single and I want to be married right now. That is good. God will work all things together. For the, or you might say, I am married and I want to be single. God will work all things together for the good. Do you see how he sometimes like, we inject into good what we want for ourselves. God knows better what is good for you than you probably do. And he even tells us what is good in the next line. He says, for whom he foreknew. You know what God is working together in your life? In the good and the bad? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's good in your life, his ultimate good is to make you more like Jesus. And he'll use the good, he'll use the bad. That's how he works all things. And so Paul is in prison being worked by God to be more like his son. And he's being brought to completion. Now we we see, we saw last week a little bit about how God forms our thoughts, and our emotions around Christ. You know, with, with Paul brought this out. Uh, his reputation was on the line. It was being slimed unfairly by other believers. Uh, he, was, he was imprisoned, and for an itinerant apostle, that means his dreams were shattered. You know, so his, his dreams were unrealized. His reputation was being slimed. We could say, uh, to simplify this a little bit, uh, that Paul's emotions were being stirred and he was, he, his emotions were being formed not around himself but around Jesus. He was learning uh, through a ruined reputation and through uh, broken dreams that Christ was exalted in him and that was shaping and forming him. So we could say that the, the same about ourselves that, that Christ is wanting to form your heart, your emotions around Christ, to feel the wide spectrum of all the emotions in the way that they were meant to, in a way that glorifies Christ. But my second question is, how far does God want to go? Well, he's not going to just stop with your emotions or your mind. 
Listen to what Paul says in verse 20, that first line. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Christ wants to conform even your physical body and strength to his image. One of the things that Christ forms is the body. One of those things that we sometimes conveniently leave out of discipleship. Now the body, just to be clear on the terms that we're, we're talking about, the body is obviously your flesh and blood and your bones and your fingers and your hands, but it also refers to all your natural abilities. This is what the biblical authors uh, were speaking about anytime they use the word flesh or body or members, words like that that come up in the New Testament. It speaks about your natural abilities. Uh, things like your actions, your cravings, your appetites, your behaviors, your habits, all of those things. That is the body. That is the flesh. And Paul is saying, this too must come under the rule of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Now, so, so deeply is Paul's flesh under Christ's rule, listen to this, that he is able to say, whether I live or whether I die, verse 20, at the end of verse 20, I have courage that, that Christ will be honored in my body whether I live or whether I die. And I don't care. Well, he, he later says what he, what he cares about. But at the end of the day, Paul is like, I don't care. My body belongs to the Lord. So however he wants to see fit to use it, it is a tool in the hands of the master. This is incredible. Paul is giving up control of his body to the purpose of God. Not just his mind. We, all, we might think of Paul as a great theologian, but he's even saying his body. Ketchup. The full spectrum of the human experience is being offered as a living sacrifice. Your bodies as a living sacrifice to to the Lord. And you say, well, this is very difficult. I th- this is why Paul, and we'll get to there, we'll get to this point, but in chapter two, he goes into that gospel poem, right? He grounds everything that God does in him and everything that is expected of us is grounded in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says about Jesus. Everything that Paul says for us to do, he says Jesus did first, so that you can live his life. It says in Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, the body, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, Jesus did this first. And he's not telling us to do something that we're, we're unable to do. Well, we are unable to do it, but he's, he's also telling us this life in Paul from Christ is also available for you to live out. The power of the living presence of Jesus is available for you to live in as well. Paul is living this way and it is available to anyone who has faith in Christ as well. To be humble and to die is what Paul is saying. Now you're hearing, you, you might hear that and say, okay, I see that, but why would I want that? Found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, something that would cause Paul himself to not even care if he lives. Why would I want that? Why is 
Humility and death on a cross and any form of self-denial, good news. As you and I are bombarded by our city and our culture that tells us that self-denial is bad news and that self-fulfillment is the highest goal, that we must be happy in and of ourselves. We must get whatever it is that makes us happy and put our bodies, essentially, on the throne of our lives. This might sound very foreign. And this is my last point that will be longer than the other first two points. What What does this mean for you and me? And I want you to, I want you to see why self-denial is good news. Not just self-denial for self-denial's sake, but self-denial for Christ, to gain Christ. The Bible paints a different picture than Santa Barbara does. Santa Barbara says the end goal of your life is to get everything that you want, is to be independent and to live for yourself. The Bible from the beginning to the end, says living for yourself is actually a small form of slavery and there's a freedom that you have not yet tapped into. Isn't isn't that the whole theme of Philippians that we've been talking about? Living for something greater than yourself? Living for someone greater than yourself? We, if I can rephrase what Paul is saying right here, when he speaks about the body and he's laying it on the line for the cause and the the, the gift of Christ, he's essentially saying, you no longer have to live enslaved to your cravings and to your habits, to your body. We don't any longer have to live for ourselves. We can live for something far greater. We can live for Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20, he gives us a, a, a small taste of what he's talking about. Paul says, do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? There it is. He starts to open up a panoramic view of what you were made for. When maybe all you've known up until this point is I am my cravings, I am my habits, I am my mistakes, I am my desires. Paul is saying, you are much more than that. You are the temple of the living God. He goes on to say, you are not your own. For those who have put their faith in Christ, you're not your own anymore. You have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. There it is. You're still asking, why is that good news? Uh, One of my friends... uh, Chris Comstock, uh, one of the directors at uh, UCSB's crew, uh, crew uh, said something to me that I just so loved. He captured this, uh, this thought in such a, a pithy way. He said, you know, Christianity is not a destination religion. It's a transformation religion. It's not so much where you go when you die. It's what God is doing with you now that will never stop. It's about the here and now. The kingdom of God has been made presently available to you right now to change you into his image. This is good news because what Paul is speaking about right here, what he's hinting at is a new kind of life. 
He's not saying, hey, do these 10 things, be forgiven, and then when you die, whenever that happens, then the journey will start. He's saying the kingdom of God is available to change and transform you right now. Paul is living and speaking about a new kind of life, an ordered life, an integrated life, where everything in your life start, is, is working as it was designed to, like ketchup. Now, Paul doesn't go into these details here. He does this elsewhere. But I want to I stop and camp out on this thought just to make sure that we, we, we chew on it. Because this is huge. To live a new kind of life that includes body, mind, heart, soul, relationships. This is what God intends for human beings. By God's design, your heart was meant to rule the rest of you under the ultimate rule of God. Your reborn heart is meant to rule the rest of you under the ultimate rule of God. That's why the author of Proverbs would say in chapter 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance. Take care of that thing. Why? Because from it flow the wellsprings of life. Out of your heart flows everything that is important and from that will influence your body and from from that will influence your relationships and from your heart will influence your thought life and from that and so on and so forth. Keep your heart, pay attention to your heart. It's an important part of you because out of it flows everything else. Love the way that Dallas Willard described the heart. He called it the command center of the human person. It's, It's another word for your will where you make decisions, the heart. I'm not, not talking about the beating heart, but what the biblical authors called the, the, uh, referred to as the, the core of who you are. It's what directs you. And if you don't know God, it will direct you according to what you want. And if you do know God, it should direct you towards what God wants. And the heart is meant to rule the rest of us. And in a healthy soul, in a healthy person, the heart is dictating to the mind what it's supposed to be thinking about. When Paul says in uh, Philippians chapter 4, I think that you are to think about that which is lovely and, ho- uh, uh, and excellent and praiseworthy. The heart is telling it to do that. And then it's also in, uh, uh, bringing together the full spectrum of human emotions, everything from joy to grief, and it's doing uh, that uh, by, by uh, pulling those emotions together, uh, t- uh, teaching us how to feel. And then it's also directing to the body, okay, carry out these decisions that flow from the heart so that God can be glorified and loved by the whole person. Amen. And so just think about how something like this might work. You get born again, all of a sudden God stirs in your heart. A desire for the unlovely. And you start to feel the conviction that God loves the poor and the least of these. And your heart directs your mind to think upon passages such as uh, uh, in the Gospels when it says that uh, Jesus cared about the least of these. And when you give a cup of cold water to the least of these, you're doing it to Jesus himself. And then your emotions as a result of that start to feel compassion for the poor 
when maybe you didn't feel that before. And then you start to serve. You see how the whole human person is coming under the rule of God. And it starts with the heart. God gets you right where you need to be gotten. Now imagine that happening in a community of people doing the same thing. And you're on fire. Jesus told us that this is how it's supposed to be. When a, when a young person came up to Jesus and said, what is the most important thing in the whole Bible? Or the Torah. In the Hebrew scriptures. What, uh, you know, out of 618 or whatever commands, 613 commands, what's the most important one, Jesus? And Jesus said, and he summarized all of them. Remember this? In two words. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, another word for body, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's a social component. This isn't by accident. God wants the whole person. And then he said, listen to what he said after that in verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered, uh, excuse me, the, the, the person said that, repeated that to Jesus. Jesus affirmed him, said, you have, you have answered correctly. Now do this and you will live. Jesus is actually saying that for the whole person to be transformed, mind, body, soul, spirit, strength, relationships, and to be living under the rule of God is the right way to live. It is the full way to live. This is what we are designed for. This is what we are made for. How many of us are living that way. We might be more like mustard to uh, beat a dead horse. You might be focusing on one ingredient. You're like, my mind is doing pretty good. I ingest a lot of Bible study. I read my Bible. I read a lot of books. I listen to sermons. I listen to podcasts but your emotions are a wreck. You might, be, uh, you might have healthy emotions. Maybe you are growing in self-awareness. Uh, you're seeing how things in your past are affecting you. Uh, you're letting God touch all of those areas in your life, um, but your body is a wreck. You know, you know how you know? Because you have habits that you can't control. Maybe you have a lot of theological knowledge. You know verses of the Bible, but your habits are overpowering you. You have these addictions, and you're like, how come I know so much of the Bible, but I, I, can't, I can't live the things that I know so much about? I'm spitting right now. Dallas Willard, to continue his quote, would, would describe this as, as being a ruined soul saying one part of you might be okay, but the rest of you is not, therefore all of you is not okay. God isn't, God isn't concerned about just one part of you. He wants the whole human being. Yeah. You're a complex person made in the image of God. God wants all of you. And for people who are not living fully, their souls are in ruin. And in the ruined soul, what's often happening is the mind and the heart are being ruled by your body. It's backwards. The heart's supposed to tell the mind what to think, and the heart's uh, supposed to direct the body on what to do. 
And the heart itself is to be ruled by God. And so all of those things in unison working together. But in a ruined soul, the mind and the heart are enslaved to the body. You have habits that you can't break. You fly into a rage and you don't know why. You're uh, a little more into yourself than you would like to be. Paul speaks about this in depth all over. So does James. For example, Galatians 5 verse 17 He's, where he speaks about the spirit or the heart. Those are kind of inter- interchangeable words for Paul. He speaks about them being enslaved to the body. Listen to what he says. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit in you are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Your body is, is not on board. It did not get the memo that your heart did. And it's fighting against you. It also fights against your mind. You, you read the Bible. You learn things about God. You're, you're renewing your mind. Your body is fighting against that. Look at what Paul says in Romans 7 verse 23. He says, but I see in my members, the body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Your body also fights with its habits and its appetites and its uh, uh, desires. It also fights against your relationships. James says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Take a wild guess. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Aren't all the broken relationships and the strife and the things that have erupted in our family and in our, our, uh, in our relationships, probably, you can, can you probably trace them back to something someone said with their mouth? The body. It's ruling. It's ruling us in a ruined soul. And you know what needs to happen? If we were to follow Paul's train of thought, I know I'm going on a tangent from his original thought, but it's hard to understand what he's saying right here. I, I, I'm... I have full courage that Christ will be honored in my body without understanding the weight of what that means. You might say, well, what needs to happen is I need to listen to uh, more sermons or lectures. Or I just need a good theological book. Or I need to read the Bible more. You might even say that. All of those are good things. But do do you see what's happening right there? You're saying... It's all about my mind. If I just have enough information, I'll be transformed. That's part of it. But your body needs transformation as well. Your heart needs it as well. Your relationships need it as well. And what is happening right here is that the heart needs to be healed first and foremost and awakened to Christ. And the body needs to be brought underneath the rule of the heart. And when that happens, the body starts doing what the heart wants, and the heart wants what Jesus wants. And they're all in line together, like a good bottle of ketchup. That's what we're seeing in Paul right now. This doesn't just, you you don't just wake up in the morning and say what Paul is saying. Or you might say what Paul is saying, but you'll fail miserably, unless you have what Paul has. His inner life is filled with with the fullness of God in Christ. 
And it is taking over, not just his mind, but his heart and his body and his relationships as well. That's why he's able to say in verse 21, for to me to live is Jesus Christ and to die is gain. What does that mean? Well, let's take that first phrase. And, uh, for to me uh, to live is Christ. Paul is, in other words, he's saying, life for me is just an opportunity to, to do more with Christ. That just means I get to walk with him in my body. He gets to, to, to operate in my desires, in my appetites, in my habits, in my actions, in my behavior. That's awesome. And through that, it spills out to you. That's great. To die is gain. What is gain in death for Paul? Well, he would say, for him, dying means he gets more of the fullness of Jesus Christ. He gets to see him face to face. And so life, uh, in this life for Paul, and what's available to you and I, is, 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 is that I, I am, I am t- if I am to live in this fleshly life, in this body, that means fruitful labor for me with Christ. That's what Paul is saying in 20, uh, verse 22. In 23, he says, my, but my desire is to depart and be with Jesus. That would be far better. So if I stay here, I get to walk with Christ, but if I die, I get to be with him face to face. That's way better, bro. Do you see how Paul's whole lens in life is shaped through and through by how much of Jesus that he gets? You don't just wake up in the morning and this is the thing that you want. This must be learned and experienced and accepted and submitted to. Paul can't even view prison apart from reference to Jesus. People make fun of him. They ruin his reputation. They slime him. He thinks about that in terms of how much of Jesus he can get. This is not an act of sheer willpower. This is a long life of abiding in the vine. This is the fountain of Paul's energy and desire. It has consumed him through and through. And it can consume you through and through too. Abiding in Jesus is a huge part, as we've talked about for the past few weeks, of what it means to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Now, there are other things, like your habits, long-standing behaviors that you can't beat. And for that, we have things like spiritual practices and disciplines for the body, but we don't do those by themselves. And you know, we'll get into all of those later. It must start with the heart. Paul is all about Christ in the heart, changing it from the inside out. I remember, uh, I think of his prayer that it's just been on my mind lately uh, in Ephesians chapter three when he says, uh, he, he prays that we would be, by the riches of his glory, God would strengthen us with power in the, uh, in the Holy Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. You don't just wake up and Christ is dwelling in your hearts. Paul is praying, I pray for you that God would grant you to be strengthened with the capacity to have Jesus in it, changing you from the inside out. How do you know you're being formed in the image of Jesus? Is it singing more? 
Is it praying better? Is it being on mission? Is it even being, uh, being whole and made new? Those are all benefits of conforming to Christ, but I think they fit under a bigger measurement. Look at what Paul, look at what Paul says after this. Verse 22. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. He's like, should I die and get more of Jesus or should I stay and and help you? I'd rather die because I get more of Jesus. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh, eh, more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. What? Of all the things that are facing me right now, I would rather die so that I can be with Jesus for that is the goal of my entire life. That in itself is pretty awesome. I want to get to that place. But then he goes and says, but I'm not going to do that just yet. That thing that I want more than anything, I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to hold off because you're important to me. It seems like for Paul, the, uh, if you were to measure his stature, say, how do we know that he's conforming to Christ? It's because of a, a supernatural love in his heart where he cares more about people than he does even about himself. Paul is so caught up in Jesus that he doesn't mind dying because he would get Christ out of it. Indeed, he would rather die for that very reason, yet he's resolute on staying because he loves people so much. Paul has stopped thinking about himself. There's another thing you can't just wake up in the morning and start doing. I've tried it. It doesn't work. He loves the church more than he loves himself. An ordered life is, first of all, a life filled with the love of God. Love for God that turns into love for others. You know that you're growing because you know that you're loving. And you know that something is disordered when you start to see that love disintegrate in your life. I'm just going to end right there and summarize this by saying... uh, What Paul is speaking about here seems to be that God's great desire is to form us, mind, body, and soul, into that of his son, Jesus Christ. And if we are abiding in that, if we're abiding in Christ, we'll start to notice that we desire less to live for ourselves, and this will play out most tangibly in how we treat other people. We'll be abiding in Jesus Christ and loving other people. Now, this is what we see in Paul. This is what true freedom looks like for you and I. Living for something greater than ourselves and not having to be enslaved to our sin, to our habits, to our cravings, to our appetites. Now that is very, that's a difficult journey. And so I want, you, I, I want you to ask yourself, as, as we sing together, where is there a conflict within me? 
Is it, is it my heart? Is it in my body, my actions? Is it in my emotions? Is it in my relationships? Is, where is there a conflict? Where are things not adding up? And I want you to focus on what you're good at. I am smart and I know a lot of things. Where, where is there a conflict? I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 42, where he speaks to his soul in the first person. Why are you in such turmoil, turmoil O oh my soul? Why are you so conflicted? Hope in God. Is it your emotion? Is it your habits? Is it your behavior? Is there something that you just can't beat? Is it your mind? Is your mind just always full of anxiety or lust or empty passions? Is it, are your relationships broken? Where's the conflict? Now, when you get there, I want you to try to problem solve because we can't fix that in one morning. In fact, we're going to take probably a whole year talking about stuff like this. What I want you to do now is to be aware of where the conflict is within you. Ask, what's, what's wrong within me? What's broken? What am I powerless to be? And then I want you to think about God in Christ being present in the mess that is your problem. He won't always take you out of the prison cell, but he will be present in the cell to transform you into his image. What's that prison cell for you? Paul had an affliction. What's your affliction? What's the conflict of your soul? Jesus is desiring to be present right in that spot, in the mess Maybe that's so messy, you're ashamed to speak about it with other people, but God knows what it is, and he wants you to open up so that he can be present in that mess with you. He's not ashamed of you. He's not scared of you. You aren't that, like, one person out of seven billion that's, like, surprising him right now. Like everybody else, oh, yeah, I got a plan for every, oh, but that person, wow, I've never seen that sin before. That's a new one. I'll have to think about that for a moment. He loves you. And he wants to make you whole. And you are right now, if you have faith in Christ, in the process of being made whole. And I think God is saying to a lot of you, just jump in. Just take an extra step. I'm going to do it in you, but I want you to step into the process of what I'm doing. And as we sing today, I'm going to ask the, the worship team to come up. Abide in his presence. And if you want to take another step farther, you can ask him another question. God, I found my mess. Now please give me a captivating vision of Jesus Christ so that I can believe you and walk with you and trust you and be courageous just like this. Heavenly Father, uh, come to you this morning and ask that you would work in us to work and to will for your good pleasure.
Some of us don't even have the will anymore. We're so beaten and bedraggled and tired. You're the one who never sleeps. Isaiah said that you are the one who never tires, you never sleep nor slumber. And yet you, the one who never tires, are able to flood tired people with youth that can renew them like the eagles. So I pray for, you know what? I pray for a spirit of youth to flood through all of us today. A stirring up in our hearts and minds and souls for a new way to live. And I pray that you would come to that tired person, to the broken person, to the guilty and to the ashamed. And you would kneel down like you have done so many times with tired, broken people. You would make eye contact with them in a very real way. I pray that they would sense that today. Grab them by the hand and say, I'm going to make something with you, of you, through you, with you. And where people are tired, I pray for energy of heaven to fill their hearts. Where people are ashamed, I pray that there would be now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are self-righteous, I pray that you would break their self-righteousness and replace it with a deep dependence on the power of the Spirit. For those who are lonely, would you be their friend? For those uh, who are caught in habits of sin, would you show them the power of living for and with Christ? As we begin to move our bodies to make words that profess how good you are, may our hearts and our minds catch up we believe that you are good and may our hearts stir with joy that you have not left us to our own devices.